Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's Lounge at the CWE. I'm Chanel, and I'm joined by my co-host, Natalie. Hi. And Alexis. Hey, y'all. So this week, we're actually, our topic is feeling set up with a PH. So we're really going to be talking about what it's like to be in a PhD program and give you some tips for surviving that first year. Um, but first, we're going to get started with our first segment, Let's Get It Started, where we where you get to know a little bit about who we are. So uh, the question again is, what are you watching? What are you reading? And what are you listening to? So let's start with you, Natalie. What you watching? What you reading? What you listening to? Mm, I'm watching. I'm reading. I'm listening to a lot. I'll just go with the most embarrassing of all what I'm watching, and it's Selling Sunset. It's a series on Netflix where a bunch of very beautiful women sell, sell property that is bajillions of dollars in L.A. Um, you know, and it's made by the same people who did The Hills, so it's like a lot of like really um, minor incidents blown up into full-blown arguments. Um, and then like manufactured cocktail parties and stuff. I, I really like it. Um, I, I just finished two books. I read pizza girl this weekend, which was a quick read. It was about, a, a um, a, actually both of the books I read were about reluctant mothers. Um, and so she's like a, a, a teen girl who's pregnant and, um, also a pizza delivery girl. And I also just finished sea wife, um, which was a great book. It's a, well, it was a really enjoyable book, kind of like a summer read. Um, you know that family who like took off with their kids um, sailing around the world and they had to be rescued? And there's like yes. a lot of controversy around it. Yeah. So this is, is a fictional account of that. And, uh, but it's centered on mostly the experience of, of the mother who reluctantly goes on this sailing trip. And, and I enjoyed it. I am listening to another kind of mystery fiction podcast. This one was called, it's called Unwell, a Midwestern Gothic mystery. And it's, Ooh. it's just that. And it's, it's really good. Um, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's like this, this woman goes back to her hometown and there's all this kind of mystery and ghosts surrounding the, the home that she grew up in. And I like it. I like it. Nothing okay. too serious. How about you, Alexis? Well, I am watching P-Valley on Stars. It is quality television. It takes place in Chuckalisa, Mississippi. And it um, kind of documents the lives of these like poor Black people. Um, and it centers around this strip club called The Pink. And it's under foreclosure. And it's all of these adventures. And it's just beautifully shot. They got bomb music. Um, and... Uh, it's just a great show. It's really popping. It's it's the costuming. It, I could just talk about it all day. Um, what am I reading? I'm quote unquote reading for my list because I am doing exams, preparing for my exams. So am I really reading all of these things, these hundred books on my list? No, um, but I am supposed to be. <laughs> um, and I'm listening to... Um, Mulatto's new album, Queen of the South. I do not like her rap name, but she can rap. And I've been listening to Flo Millie also. You know, I'm here for the rap girls. Yeah, that's good. 
Okay, so I am watching Mulan. Um, we are preparing for the the release this weekend on Disney Plus. We have the whole thing planned. We'll rearrange the living room to look like a theater, and we'll pop popcorn and make nachos or burgers and fries, and we are going to get our thirty dollars worth um, and really make it feel like we are at the movies. Um, so we are watching the cartoon version. So that we can adequately compare. Um, I am reading Where the Wild Things Are. It actually was my favorite book as a kid. And so we've been reading it in the house. And uh, the kids didn't know there was a movie based on it. And so this weekend we watched the movie. um, And then went back and been reading the book again. Because now they feel like they really know the characters. So that has been the current read and listening to. All right. So we're recording this on Tuesday which means that the Brandy versus Monica battle happened. The versus happened yesterday and it was fabulous. I was singing at the top of my lungs and my husband had the nerve to shush me. (laughs) Like, I mean, it's Brandy and Monica. You have some nerve. And meanwhile, when sports are on and it's the playoffs, I hear so many woo, but I can't get like that when Angel of Mine came on because I forgot about that song and it just did something to me. But all kinds of emotions. I enjoyed that battle. It had to be the best verses. There were some awkward moments between them, but the music was incredible. So I am still listening today um, to the playlist and stuff. So did either of you catch it? Did you catch it? Um, I didn't watch it, but I really was, I was watching the commentary on Twitter, which is always uh, <laughs> people be coming with the jokes. They said Brandy and Monica look like two aunties. Your aunties that don't like each other, but really love their mom and their family dinner. And one wrong joke, <laughs> the whole thing gonna go up and smoke. It, it, was, it was like that. You know, Brandy knew all of Monica's songs and was singing along. Monica really was not <laughs> singing <laughs> along to Brandy. And, you know, I think, you know, I was kind of trying to rethink their beef from when we were kids or whatever and like try to see like what what it was really about because this is before social media where we knew like all the details of celebrity lives but the music was incredible and I've been a stand of both of theirs so that's what I'm listening to and got my playlist going with both of their music so that's that what is the hot gossip tell me everything All right, so we each picked something that's happening in pop culture that we wanted to talk about. So, Alexis, you're up first, and I think you were bringing up the the VMAs. What you got? Yes, so a couple things about the VMAs. Um, First, Kiki Palmer hosted. She looked gorgeous. It was a virtual VMA, so it was a mix of things being, um, like, pre-recorded. Some were, like, live it was really hard to tell what people were doing where and what time it happened um so that was a little weird but was that a good thing like in some ways it's kind of nice to not know if it's pre-recorded or live or was it a confusing experience i think it i think it's cool in, in the in the way where they were trying to give a seamless experience but also it's like i guess we're all just super curious and maybe a little suspicious of how this is happening in the time of COVID, you know, like, how are you doing this safely? And I know that they were, um, I know that they were trying to do it in a way that was super, um, safe. So I think it was a little distracting and disorienting for some people, but it was like necessary. 
Um, but the the thing about Kiki Palmer hosting it, it was like the first time in super long they've had a, a woman of color host by herself. I think the last time they had it, it was before Kiki Palmer was even born. Um, and so, she, Whoa. yeah, so she was putting on. And in the similar vein, this was the first year in like a decade that they've had an R&B category for the VMAs. And oh, so no. that's trifling to me. Um, that image, VMAs do better. Like how you gonna honor Beyonce, you know, like, but not have, not have an R&B category. It's very weird. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it's it's exciting that there was an R&B category. It's exciting that Kiki Palmer hosted, but it's also showing hey, you- Hey, go back to the R&B category. Who was in it? Because I'm wondering if it's like, people feel like now we're, we're returning to true R&B. And so the R&B girls became undeniable this year or- Last year, you got Summer Walker, you got her, you got SZA. Like, it's so many R&B girls putting on for the category that, like, they had to do something. Like, I wonder what the return was about and what the erasure was about in the first place. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because the thing is, they be weird about categorizing people anyway, an artist anyway. Like, things that fall under the R&B category, it'd be like Beyonce, Mary J, Blige, and, like, Rihanna all in one category and they're no R and B has always been a racialized category because for real for real, you know, like Rihanna fits better in pop. And um so the categories the categories are weird and R and B has always been a traditionally like black category. Um and so there has been some erasure. So I don't really feel convinced that them bringing it back has anything to do with like the quality of the artist, but really that it's un you can't keep excluding these artists from categories and R and B is just like a category you can usher lots of black talent into. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Um oh and my favorite part about the VMA is because I don't really watch lots of stuff because eh but Chloe and Hallie they've been everything. That tennis court, these girls are coming for blood. Like the, the the choreography, the outfits, the vocals, your fave could never, you know? And they're <laughs> all of our favorites. You can tell Beyonce just blessed them with this magic. And they show out every time. Um, but they keep getting on pre-shows or post-shows instead of, like, the actual, um, mm. like, live award, like, during the award show time, which is interesting. And uh, they deserve better. But I'm a stan. That's yes, it's really fun to see them come into their own and to get to be grown. Yeah, um, uh, you know, it's always interesting to watch that transition from you know when they when artists are young and how they get to actualize adulthood. But it's been really nice to watch Colleen and Hallie grow up. Um, yeah. So yeah, love to see. All right, Natalie, what'd you bring? Well. I mean, I, first I thought maybe we'll, we'll talk about Adele because what's going on with Adele? But then I was also <laughs> thinking about surprise yesterday. Was it yesterday? Yeah, I think yesterday because yeah. the day we're recording. Nisi Nash posted to Instagram. Not only did she share that she is newly married, but that she has a wife, which is oh, what a reveal. I feel like that. Yeah, I mean, it's that's very what she posted too. One of her yeah. things like hashtag plot twist. Yeah, hashtag plot twist. I got a whole wife. I think that's what she said. She said, I got a whole wife, <laughs> which I really love. Um, I think it's a very wonderfully queer way to come out. <laughs> and like with a whole wedding, you know? A wedding. 
right? <laughs> like, wow. you know, it's not just like a flag or like surprise, like some a tearful post is, is typical of like coming out stories. Wife, yeah. You I don't know the wife. I don't know. No, no, I don't. I don't. I know she's a musician. Yeah. Recording artist singer. That may have helped it, like, help them keep it under wraps, right? Like, that it wasn't, like, you know, Lena Waithe or something. Yeah, you know, yeah, something really famous. Tougher. <laughs> yeah, to, um, yeah. But, and everyone, you know, in their, in their real life is just like, oh, they're just good friends, you know? know. It's really easy for us to, 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 to you know, go unnoticed. It's, it's so funny because there's a video, because I did slight stalking of Nisi Nash posted up. And there's a video of them together on set of the show that Nisi Nash is on. And uh, she's like, oh, when your homegirl comes to work with you, you know, and it's like her now wife. And it 2018, been a thing. I think I saw, I don't know if this was a rumor or not, but that um, that the wife, I want to stop calling her the wife, but I like the But that the wife um, <laughs> um, saying at her last wedding or like at, at the, yeah, I did see that too. Like, that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's where, I, adding up for me that's where they met actually. <laughs> wow. But I, I did that too with like, um, so there was a while when like Stacy London, you remember what not to wear Stacy London, yes. she had that like white yes. streak in her hair. Well, yes. there was a while where she like kept posting with this person and it was like, you know, you get really excited when you're, career like oh who who else is it like who who um it's very titillating and exciting um and it was the same thing where I, like I, I was back like 40 pages on on Stacey London and this person who she tagged uh who I, I think is like her partner now like she's she, she's out she wasn't not out but she's uh, made a, a statement about being out um and I was probably like 40 pages back it was like ooh, they were riding a train together and it was all like very titillating and exciting because I don't know we get excited it's it's exciting when someone I don't know joins the family yeah I yeah guess. representation matters I think that that's cool yeah 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 <laughs> all right um so for me um I I brought to the table um the passing of chat with Bozeman King T'Challa Black Panther um we found out over the weekend on August 28th actually that he passed away and I think it has spawned a lot of conversations. The first um, for me is August 28th as being one of the most significant dates in Black history. So much has happened on that day. Um, Martin Luther King, I believe, delivered the I Have a Dream speech on that day. Jackie Robinson found out he would be integrating Baseball on that day, uh, slavery was outlawed in the UK on that day. Um, Emmett Till was killed on that day. And so we talk about Black August in general, but August 28th um, has a specific uh, importance in our history. And so for Black Panther um, to die on that day, it just really drove that point home. I think a lot about what that movie has meant for the for the black community. So losing Chadwick Boseman at 43 to colon cancer of all things, it's just, um, it, it was just a lot. My son is only four. He loves Black Panther. So, um, but I don't think he understands the concept of actors. So, you know, he was actually a little too young for us to tell. So we didn't, but my daughter who is eight, she does know, and she took it pretty hard. So we spent the weekend kind of, uh, watching Black Panther and 
her going back through Halloween costumes, costumes and things like that. Um, but yeah, I, it brought up a lot of conversations in um, the Black community and I think in the disabled community with folks talking about like wanting to make sure that this isn't a moment that allows us to kind of uphold some really problematic tropes about uh, disability that like, because we now know that Chadwick Boseman was suffering from um, colon cancer for, for four years. So the entire time, really, since that he was filming Black Panther and a bunch of other movies that he came out with during that time period that he was that he was working sick. And so there's a way that we can kind of hold that up. And, and then it, it creates um, like just unfair expectations for for everyone else. So those are some of the conversations that I've seen come up. Um, well, we all been watching this news, so I'm going to open the floor. For y'all to also, you know, speak on that, like what, you know, what that meant or what you what conversations you saw um, spur because of that. Uh, Yeah, for me. Yeah, it was it's super disheartening to hear of his passing because I was certainly one of those people that dressed up um, the Thursday for to see Black Panther um, and watched him in lots of movies and was really um appreciative of the, the way that he kind of portrayed these heroes in black culture, both like this fictional hero, Black Panther, but also like Jackie Robinson and James Brown and um, Thurgood Marshall. Um, but also a part of this conversation about like not letting his um, death be this like inspiration porn is how people categorize mm-hmm. the idea that like, he suffered while he was making these great things. And so like, that is like, oh, well, what are you going to do with your 24 hours? You know, like, I think that that is really like this, um, this trick of capitalism to think that we find these stories to convince us that you need to like, mm. you know, and I think that that is super important while we are still in a pandemic, while we are still experiencing the like heartaches that are associated with seeing um, state sanctioned violence play out on video for like repeat um, that we are not sucked into this idea that we need to be at like peak productivity, that we need to push through all this pain. And I'm, I appreciate the ways that he was able to, and, and maybe he found joy in that. Maybe he found like there was a greater purpose in that for him, but I don't think um, that we should use this as a way to shame other people into days where they can't get out of bed, where they can't make it, you know, um, and, and it's not like they're not fulfilling their purpose, you know? So I think that that's important. I also think it's super hard that even though that his, his death wasn't, um, you know, at the hands of like the state or, um, Mm -hmm. or COVID or something like that, this still shows the ways that like, we have to grieve black people dying very early and, um, and the conditions that cause, us to like carry stress in our bodies that we know can contribute to disease because we experience systemic racism. And so it just is, it's thinking about his death is not devoid of all of the ways that like we have been grieving at this time and for a majority of this year. Um, and so it's just been, it's caused me to like pause a bit and to really like tell the people that I love that I love them and, and seek ways to rest and to find joy. Mm-hmm. Um, despite all that is deeply saddening. 
Yeah. And I, I don't know if it's really separated from state violence because he's from South Carolina. And I do know North Carolina, at least, has very high prevalence of colon cancer in the Black community. And I think, if I remember correctly, it has something to do with the hog farming. Um, and so it, it made me, you know, want to do a little digging. Like, is that also a thing in South Carolina? Um, I'm not exactly sure, you know, what part of South Carolina he's from, but I do know that there's some sh- um, environmental racism at play with how these um, colon cancer rates are impacting the Black community. And, you know, he he got colon cancer long before he would have been a candidate to be screened. Um, and there's a way, too, within our community that we can internalize that as, like, we need to get screened, we need to eat right, we need to, and, like, not knowing that, like, nah, but it's hog farming happening and the pollutants. Like, so you could, you could be, I mean, he was a vegetarian. So, like, you could eat as healthy as you want. You could be Black Panther. <laughs> you know, like, he, he had to work out a lot for that role and for most of the roles that, that he played. And so this isn't about individual health. Like it's very, it's very um, likely that this had something to do with structural racism, environmental racism, and those kind of things. Um, and then I'm just also thinking about the black community as a whole. Like God, Lee. Like how how much can one group of people take in one year? I'm not even talking about the 400 years, right? But in one year, because the year started, we lost Kobe Bryant and his baby girl. Like she was on that. Like that was so gut wrenching, and that was in February. Yeah. And then the way that the COVID rates have impacted our community, and then the constant police brutality. Somebody just died in LA. Like got killed yesterday. Like it's like you can't even catch a break from that. And then, you know, on top of that, we lose the, you know, King T'Challa, which I think it was just a soup, like the most important cultural representation I've seen in, in, in my life, um, in terms of the, the healing that it did for, you know, Africans and African-Americans where we had, we've had a lot of tension for, for a very long time. And that movie really began to, to, to mend those wounds. And I mean, there are real conversations about like, can there be another one, right? Like how, how do you have another one without chat with Bozeman? Like how, how do you do it? And so, I, don't, I mean, from reading the comics, there, it's possible that Sherry, like, you know, there's some possibilities, but there's still like a, a mourning, not just of um, Chadwick Bozeman, but of, of Black Panther and what that meant for us. So anyway, that's that. That's the hot gossip. Gossip? I don't even know if that's gossip. That's the news. It's time for our couch conversation. All right. So today we are talking about being fed up slash surviving the PhD. We have uh, Chanel and I who who actually finished uh, our PhDs in the same year, in the same uh, field and departments, and Alexis is in her third year, now entering her third year of doctoral studies. And um, so we have different perspectives and different experiences, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really not easy to finish a PhD. And so today we are just sort of starting a conversation about, um, you know, things that we learned um, both in having finished it, having gone through it, and Alexis, who's in it right now, um, because 
there are so many challenges in getting a PhD done or, or choosing not to get a PhD done. And I feel like um, every opportunity I have, every opportunity Chanel has to connect with other people who have, who are working through, who have finished, like we take it because there's, there's so much to say and time and reflection give you so much perspective, um, you know, and perspective that you can't get by like attending a professional development seminar, which, uh, you know, those are great. Um, but, you know, there's, there's so much more to it. So, so, so much more to it. Okay. So to, to start it off, I guess my first question for us all is why is getting a PhD, finishing a PhD so hard? And what are, um, what are the some of the things that you did that that made it easier, that made it doable, or make it doable for you? Yeah, um, big question. Yeah, it's a it's a big question, but it's important. And I I would say even to this day that that was the hardest thing I ever did, and I gave birth twice. Um, I also had epidural. Amazing. Still, be cool. Still. <laughs> but it was it was. It was the hardest thing I've, I've ever done. And it, and it took me 10 years to finish it. Um, I think that um, what makes it so hard is, so for me, I'm, I'm first generation. And so it's nothing like I've ever seen before. I actually think calling it school, graduate school, when you've been in school most of your life, it, you come in with a preconceived notion of what it is. And how to how to be successful in it like school was always like my happy place my my good place like i knew i knew how to do school and then and then came the phd so it's like eh, eh. like this is not quite school i actually think it's better actually to think of it as a job um and that would have prepared me a little bit more um i think that's what makes it hard i think um another thing that i just want to be clear about and we may hit on it again later is that like some of this stuff is structural, um, that it's hard because it's not designed for people who look like me um, to be here. It, you know, the the when PH, the first PhDs were awarded to property owning white men. Um, and so there's a lot of things that the university needs to do to, for real, make it a place that is inclusive to women to people of color, to people who grew up first generation, to people who grew up poor or working poor. And so there, there are times where who you are bumps up against structures that there's nothing you can do about. And you don't know that at first. So you, you think it's like you don't belong or you're not smart enough or you're not working hard enough when the reality is, is it's not you. It's a system that was that was built without you in mind, not in this way. Um, I, just as a woman, I just, you know, I remember that tweet that went viral several years ago where the person looked at all of these PhDs completed by men and the amount of them that were thanking their wives for typing it, <laughs> for typing up their actual dissertation. Yeah. And it was like, are you kidding me? Free labor? <laughs> you know, and here I am like, um, oh, taking so long to finish, not knowing that there's this whole other group of people who had free labor with women who are typing up their dissertations. Propping up their I, dissertations to some degree. Yeah. yeah. And I remember my best friend getting a hand injury while like, like, well, because it's a PhD, right? We all end up with like our backs hurt. Everybody has a back problem when they're done and their wrists are all jacked up. Right. And so 
I remember she's at the, you know, we were typing, we had to type for her. We had to be her hands. But in the midst of that, I'm like, uh-uh, don't say it like that. Say it like this, right? Like there, there are ways that, so not only would you just get in like somebody who's typing, like you're type, like you're speaking in a dragon dictate or whatever, you actually probably have someone that's like, that's not the right way to do it. Say it like this, it'll be stronger. So you're a free editor. That's what you have. That's what you have. So I think that those things um, make it tough. And maybe I'll let y'all do that. And then I'll come back and, and say like tips or whatever that things I learned. Yeah, I think that why do y'all think it makes it what makes it tough? The part where you were talking about sort of like be, being a person. I mean, I think I think that's those are some of the hardest parts of the PhD program. So you know, one of my first weeks, somebody told me that I needed to um, disentangle like myself from my 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 identity as a PhD student, and I never really figured out how to do that, and and that was so hard because so much of what you learn and so much of the mythology around um, having a PhD and being an academic it's so deeply tied to who you are, and I, I that that just didn't work for me. It was just it was just so hard. Um, and and then thinking about like who was I outside of this? I mean that was like uh, it was it was what kept me in in the program. It is what tethered me to the PhD program the entire time. It was that I I did build a life. Nobody told me to, but I did build a life outside of my doctoral program, and it's is what carried me through the eight years because I also like Chanel, I worked at the end of my program. And so it took longer. Um, I didn't have two kids, but I still, um, I was working, you know, Chanel and I would work nine to five and then we would go to the library and get mad at undergraduates who were like chewing loudly and, and gossiping and talking about reality TV, you know, cause we had to go work on the PhD after work. Um, like this is a quiet floor. Yeah, we, were, we really quiet. did become those old ladies yeah, <laughs> in the library. So I, I think part of that is, is, is yeah, because um, I think people who treat it like their job, they do seem to come out most successfully, but like I, I never outside of like really practical ways, I never found a way to disentangle myself and like worries about failure or about people thinking, thinking I, wasn't good enough outside I was I was never able to really do that yeah um I'm still working on it <laughs> um, because I am still in this John um and I think for me what I have the, what I keep bumping up against um dur during this process is that it's so mysterious you know um how to do it how to do it successfully what's supposed to happen um is not always clear once you get from phase to phase, even though I am a UNCF Mellon Mays undergraduate fellow, which is a program, it's a pre-doctoral program to help like underrepresented students get their PhD and become professors, you know? Um, and so I had that, I, I joined that the, the summer after my sophomore year and I did a boot camp and all this stuff. And I still find myself like sending emails like, and what am I supposed to do? Or I ask Chanel and Natalie, like, is it okay if I like ask somebody this or how do I set up my exams? You know, so it's such a mysterious process. And it's so like, we get this idea of the academic being this like man who's got glasses, who's sitting by himself in a study with all these books and you just get to pontificate mm -hmm. brilliant ideas and write them down. And the reality is that is not what happens. You know, especially like me, I'm a first gen student, you know, I'm super involved with my family and um, 
I, my first year here, I wasn't supposed to, but I was working, um, lots of hours at Panera Bread, you know, um, yeah. trying to, trying to do all this other stuff to survive my actual, just regular life, uh, and figure out what is this, what does it mean to do doctoral study? What does it mean to, what's the difference between a, being a PhD student and being a PhD candidate? Didn't know that until mm. I got here. Um, you know, so all of it is so mysterious and people pr- like pride themselves on the mysteriousness of it. Like the the professors, like I had so many people my first year tell me that like, oh, if you want to quit, that's normal. Like, it's fine. You're supposed to want to quit your first year. And I'm like, so I'm supposed to want to be this miserable? And I just think that it, it fosters this, this really weird individualistic culture where you're supposed to be up in a corner, like getting all these thoughts out. But the reality is, that's just not how I live my life as like a black woman. Um, and I don't have any interest in doing that and identifying that and finding ways to get my questions answered still and still produce this work, um, without abandoning who I am as a person is a job and a half. So, um, but therapy has helped. <laughs> that's the <laughs> I did. Uh, someone, my program coordinator, told me during orientation, she was like, listen, as soon as you leave here, this orientation, make an appointment with CAPS, which is our, you know, uh, psychological services. And I started going immediately. And, and it was really useful for me because I came straight from undergrad. And so this was a huge life transition for me. Um, and so help having someone to process with me, um, made it less isolating because it's a super isolating process. Yeah, I, I mean, I would definitely second the therapy thing. And I, I mean, I didn't start going to therapy until I entered the PhD program. I also got more religious because I was like, interesting. I'm a oh, interesting. I a Christian in grad school because I was like, I'm going to need something to yeah. give this up to. Like, mm-hmm. this is a lot. Like, I would go to Kenneth Chapel and be sitting there, like, okay, speak to me, Lord. (laughs) So like, yeah, it was like after becoming a feminist, after having all these critiques that I was like, but I'm gonna have to give this up. This is heavy. Um, But yeah, a part of why I feel like getting a therapist early is super important and, and forming a relationship with CAPS is super important is because I felt like in the PhD, you're always in your, your head. You're like, you're thinking always. so much. So almost, like, if if you're not, you're, you are not you feel guilty that you're not. It's like, okay, I went, yeah. went for a walk. I should really, I, yeah. used, to, I used to think like I, I had to think in the shower. I was like, oh, if not here, then where, you know? No, it's true. Lathering my like, sponge. It felt like if I could draw it, it's like your head is wide open. Like, you know, and it's like, it felt really vulnerable yeah. because it was so open to like, and it had to be open to think as deeply you know, the PH is for philosophy. Like, you know, we are we are developing new theories of how things work. Like that is that is a deep level of thought. And so I think like it being open in that way also meant that it was raw. And so the slightest um looks or things that people are probably saying and passing, like not knowing what that was doing to to me, um, when my head is already open, it's like well, do I belong? Does she think I'm stupid? Does, you know, like that kind of thing was happening. So developing a relationship with a therapist early is, is, is super important. And the piece of advice that I got from a mentor um, was that you have to find your people and you have to find them right away. 
you got to get like, it, it's like just as quickly as you need to go and like get your books, you need to be finding, you need to be finding community. You need to find some friends who, um, you got to find a niche. Like you just, you just have to. And that is something that I kind of hit the ground, um, running with like, who, Oh, you look cool. Hey girl. <laughs> you know, if, if we had Instagram and DMS at the time, I would have been all up in the DMS. Cause it's like, you, you want to go get ice cream? You want to walk to Chipotle? Like I needed to find people. I, I, I needed a crew. Um, and I think crews, posses, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the Crunk Feminist Collective. I'm super big on collectivity, but I think they provide insulation from, from the, the other dangers. So you need somebody in your class that you can, um, that you can kind of look at, like, did you see that? That was, that was nuts, you know? So I think, um, yeah, th- those are pieces of advice that I got. So, I mean, I know that we have like a lot of conversations about like all all of the everything to do with academics related to finishing or or getting through a PhD program. But, you know, what what are some of the things that you learned about like the academic parts of getting a PhD that that were meaningful to you that helped you through and and that maybe you, you probably you weren't like that you didn't learn in any really official ways. I mean, for me, um, and, and this is the hindsight piece, right? Coursework was the worst. <laughs> it, it, it yes. Was just that. Yes, 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 yes. It just got so much better post-coursework. Post, post mm-hmm. So just know that. Like, whatever you're feeling in your courses, you are not alone. It's super common. Um, I think what I wish I would have kept is a different kind of confidence and swag about myself. In courses, I can remember my first year in coursework and people were saying things and, you know, saying names like Derrida and Kant and like, I'm, I'm taking notes. I, I clearly remember I'm taking notes, like all the names. I'm like building a summer reading list. Like these are people that I don't know enough about and I feel like an imposter or like I, like I don't know enough and I'm going to catch up. Like the next break, I'm going to catch up. And then I remember I was making a point once and I think it was about our, something Audre Lorde said or Angela Davis. And it was clear that the class I was in, most of them didn't know who Audre Lorde was, but nobody picked up a pencil. And right. here I am making a list. Bending over backwards, yeah. Bending over backwards. Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute. You don't know about Black feminism or U.S. third world feminism, but I do. And I was trained by some of the best ever to do it, you know? And so I, this is a, this is an area that I actually know a lot about. So why am I sitting here and taking lists on your people, like making lists and you're not doing it for me? So I stopped and I just be- became more confident and like, I know what I know and you know what you know, and we are in these seminars together to share what we know. And some people are like, you know, look, we all PhDs. Well, none of us like we, we were all a little awkward and all really into school. Like we, we got excited by getting new post-its and <laughs> highlighters. And like, you have to know that like, that is some of what people are performing too, is yeah. like, it ain't really always about you and what you know. And like, let, sometimes you gotta just let people do whatever they trying to perform in that moment while you're like, this is what I'm coming to this classroom to get. And so it's just like a reorienting of what, what the classroom experience is in and of itself and being really confident and like, you know, things that no one else knows. And sometimes what you know is not valued by the, by the field that you're in. And that is why you're there though. Right. Like that has nothing to do with, with what you came to bring 
with your project, with your dissertation, you are bringing those voices, you know, and that theory to bear upon your field. Um, and, and that's what you're there to do, not to conform to what everyone else is saying matters, right? Yeah. I came into my program with a genetics degree and um, like the first class that I ever took with my entire cohort, we had to analyze a poem and the the Canadian um, college, like university system. I hadn't taken English since my senior year of high school. And I looked at the poem and it was like, it was like if I were to give them a genetic genetics paper, like a publication in a journal and, and be like, Oh, tell me what you think about it. Give me your analysis. Like I literally had not, I, I didn't know anything I didn't, I didn't even know what to do with it. And I was in a class with someone who like taught English and someone who was a poet, somebody who writes full time now and thinking like, you know, just, just really thinking like, okay, like, yeah, now I have to like, I have to go back and take like English classes, but I, I really didn't. And so I feel like that's, that, that there's another piece to that, that it's also like, you're an expert in some areas and not others. And you're here to develop that expertise. And I've never had to analyze a poem since. And, and yet, like I had to produce some like three page paper and I just panicked and cried. And like, it was just, it was, and I thought like, oh, this is it. I'm not supposed to be here over a poem that I never, you know, I don't even know what it was called. I don't know what it's about. I don't care. You know, I'm sure to those, the people who like the poem, sure. But like, mm-hmm. yeah, that rem- reminding yourself, like, that there there will be a lot of classes you take that they're just that they're just classes like I don't yeah. know definitely and I to like to both of y'all's point a thing that I said when I when I first got here that I thought was so clever is that I am in the academy I am not of the academy so I'm not like reproducing these you know same sort of like um I was about to say a real PhD word I was gonna say epistemologies <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Make a point, Alexis. I'm not reproducing these these systems of knowledge. I'm not reproducing these like ways of knowing. You know, like I'm here to put on for uh, the people that are brilliant that I know that I come from that didn't have access to this. And so I think reminding myself of that along the way helps me to not get caught up um, in the performance of of, of it all. And like dropping these names and feeling inadequate because I didn't know them instead, it gave me an opportunity. It's like, okay, well, can I use this to, can I put these people in conversation with the theorists that I already am rocking with? Can I, can I put, you know, like, can Audrey, who, how is Audrey Lord speaking to these theorists? And if she not, I don't got to worry about it, you know? So that was something that was helpful for me. Um, and also speaking of cohorts, like, you come in with this group of people and especially in the first month, like you really rocking with them because um, y'all, well, for me, in my case, at least I did interviews with these people. And so I saw them back in February when it was very hunger games ish <laughs> and we were all day waiting to be interviewed. But it also, um, we started at, at the university together. And so it felt like before we got our attachments, you know, individually, we were very attached to each other. And you also feel like you have to be on track with these people. Mm. If you are not matching up yeah. with who it is that you're behind and oh boy, has that been something that's been very difficult for me? Um, because my cohort has a good number of people who have masters and so they have to do less coursework and I have to do more because I came in with, uh, came straight from undergrad, but also like I told y'all, I was working at Panera Bread. I had my niece for a month. Like there's all of these things that I feel like I have to worry about that have slowed me down some. And so now as I'm preparing for exams, like some of 
the people in my cohort are taking their exams in November. Um, and mine won't be the earliest I'll do it is March, you know? And so I feel like, oh man, am I behind? Da, da, da. But like, you have to get outside of this idea that you are in like the, the people beside you, even those that came in with you are a benchmark to your progress. Cause you won't. And I think that that's right. I think that yeah. blowing up the timeline when I did that, it got a lot better. Yeah. Um, because, and, and I had to ask like, well, who said, right? Like, yes, they give you this thing, but like, who said that my journey has to look like someone else's journey and comparison is a tool of the devil. And that I know. And so trying not to compare yourself to nobody, but you right now, there are like universities, <laughs> like, you know, you got to get, yeah, like, you can't get on ap- academic probation. Yeah. You don't want to get on probation, but well, like, you can, yeah. but yeah, you, you <laughs> oh, get off you of can. it. You can. You can get off. Yeah, you can. It's a tool. <laughs> it's a tool. <laughs> you can People make that use. choice. Yeah. Yeah, no, seriously. So I think that we could we could talk until the end of time about this kind of stuff, but I want to get your kind of hot take on some of these topics of conversation. It's, it's advice that changed your life that um, you wish you had known sooner or when you learned it, it changed everything. So I'll start first with uh, cohorts. So I will say my co- find a cohort however it makes sense for you. My cohort was not my real cohort. I found a cohort um, actually with students in the English department. They were they were my people. And I also found a lot of community with other Black women all across the university who were not in my program. Um, and so there was a, a peer kind of support thing that gave me uh, the community that I needed. So that there's community find community, even if it's not in the cohort that is given to you. Nice. I know. I think for me, I think about like all of the cohorts all around me and how much people wanted to give me advice. And some of it was so helpful and so revolutionary and so great. And then, and others was just really bad. Like there are all kinds of people in grad school and I wished that I had paid closer attention to like whose advice I wanted to take. I can think of what one really mean spirited piece of advice that I, that I didn't take or, or, or that affected my decision. And in hindsight, I would have made a different decision, you know, and, and this was just someone, I, I knew that they were being mean spirited, but I listened anyway, because they were older than me. And so I, I would say like, um, take advice everywhere, but then, but, but, but you don't have to apply it just because somebody else told you to do it or that it was a good idea. What do you think, Alexis? I would just reiterate to not, um, compare yourself to your cohort, uh, because that fosters unnecessary competition and you don't want comparison is a thief of joy and competition. You don't got time for that. So don't, don't, don't do that. Okay. Next one. Committees. A lot of talk about committees, right? When you walk into the program or who's on your committee, what's going to happen? You know, what do you think, Chanel? What's your hot take on committees? I actually had difficulty forming my committee. So my big piece of advice would be to make sure that you're taking classes with people who you think you might want to work with, even if the class that, that you, that's offered isn't in your area. I focus more on course topics and the content of the courses, um, and I would have done that differently. Um, what I would add to that is like, there's this, uh, I don't know about y'all, but I was definitely afraid to go talk to some of these professors that yes. I admired or looked up to, or they felt so important. Um, but I would just say, go talk to them, like schedule a meeting during their office hours or make an appointment. Um, even if you haven't read all their work, even if you only vaguely think that they might be interesting to you, just get to know them because they are there to support student work. Um, and so yeah, just talk to them as soon as possible so you're not 
scrambling to find people who you've made a connect like a connection with when you're building your committee because it can feel a little weird when it's like I haven't talked to you at all in my two years here but like will you help guide this project so yeah yeah and that's why I say take classes with those people if, if you can yep Go ahead, yeah, Natalie. I, I mean, I totally agree, Alexis. I think like I had built up in my head, like, oh, why would anyone want to work with me? And then I had someone who actually was on my committee who was like, well, it's our job to do that. And that totally, totally mm-hmm. reorients you. Like, so you do, you end up doing this thing where you put it off because yeah. you're afraid to ask or you're afraid X, Y, and Z um, and, and be really, um, you know, there were a lot of people who were um, really strategic and really thoughtful and thinking early about about their committees. And I wish I had done that. I mean, I, I ended up with a great committee, but, um, you know, not without a lot of like worry about how to do it. And um, it's just some decisions that need to be made. And and so make them thinking about it a, a little bit more professionally and getting out of my own head about it, I think would have would have saved me a lot of worry and, and, and you know, rumination that was just totally a waste of time. Totally a waste of time. Okay. Next one, time management. I mean, there is so much time and no time at all in the doctoral program. And in Chanel did 10, I did eight, which is, you know, it's a while. Um, what do you think about time management? I think a lot about, I think a lot about time management actually. And the biggest uh, piece of advice I'd give is, um, setting it up like a 40 hour work week. I think, you know, the way that we do with grad school is actually pretty disrespectful to the labor rights movement that worked really hard for us to have a 40 hour work week. And we don't care anything about it. We will think about grad school all day, every day in the shower, on walks at the gym. It's just taking over too much of our minds. And like we, we work all the time. So I really think setting it up like a nine to five, treating it like a job, thinking of your advisor as a supervisor that's just supervising you on a project, all the things that I think we think of as limiting, um, especially as PhDs, like the whole reason why we did this is because we want to set our own schedules and enjoy our summers, but no one is actually doing it. We're all working more time. So I think scheduling it and having clear cutoffs that your family and everyone knows like, okay, well, she's off at five. Um, and she takes her weekends off. Um, I actually think you'd get more done and and have more p- progress on your project. Yeah, I, I, I would just co-sign with that. Um, I would also, for me, I've been practicing like setting boundaries because it is just this boundless time that you know you can be accessible to people in your department or thinking about this work. And so I really try to have my mornings, and um, I also had this very bad habit my first year I was doing lots of all-nighters I did not have a laptop so I was thugging it out in the the grad lounge trying to write these papers overnight and that's just not sustainable um for my actual well-being as a person um and so managing my time in such a way that I schedule in breaks and rest because you know I'm deserving of rest period like you don't gotta earn a break um you kind of think that when you're doing this work like you haven't earned the right to take a nap but you have yeah and you never will because all of your projects are so long and unbounded that like you're you're never gonna earn it you're never worried of it uh, you know you're never worthy of it I mean I think um mine is a little bit less practical but I when I think about managing my time I think about uh, advice that one of my advisors gave me which was that like finishing this project was going to be ugly and so and for me that had a lot to do with time management because um 
I think I had this idea that like, unless the conditions were all ripe and the words were flowing and you had a coffee on your desk and it was the middle of the day, you know, that you really, you weren't going to get it done, that you couldn't get it done, that you weren't, you know, you weren't producing good stuff. And in reality, like I got most of my stuff done down to the wire really late at night. Um, and it was like all over the place. And sometimes it was only a little, and sometimes it was a lot like, like getting out of your head, this was going to be some like neat linear process. I know it's a little opposite of what Chanel was saying in terms of like a 40 hour work week. But if I forgave myself for like waste of doing what I wanted during the day, knowing that I was going to be productive, like at 10 PM or 11 PM, it, it would have freed up a lot of, of mental energy for me and a lot of guilt. Cause you know, guilt really it's not, it's not really useful in finishing, I don't think, or get, getting through it. So the last question I have is, I mean, it seems like there are, there are a lot of resources out there. Um, what are, what are some of those resources that either you have a hot take on, you wish you knew about, you, you used frequently, or that were so helpful, or things that you might not think of as resources that, 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 that really are? I have two real top-notch. One, plug for the CWEs. I host the grad writing workshop. I The whole reason I applied to work at the CWE was because I participated in the grad writing workshop and it was fabulous. Um, and it is now hosted by me and it is helpful because you need a place to be accountable to someone um, and have a structured place and time to work on this stuff. Um, and I, I would suggest do it while you're in coursework so you can build that practice that you, you know, from Fridays, from 10 to two that you're working on this stuff. Uh, super great. There's lots of writing workshops that are not just hosted by the CWE. You can find them or at least just an accountability partner do that. Second thing, uh, use all the money that they offer you. Mm. You got PBS funds. There's a grant for this. There's a, apply to them all. Take all the money. <laughs> they, <laughs> already, they already use your labor for a lot and you are worth more than what they're paying you, even if you have a high stipend. So don't leave not a dollar on the table. And I, and I think that's right. I think back to, you know, I, I keep saying treating it more like a job because I did both, right? Like I got a job while finishing up the PhD and it really just gave me a different perspective. And so to Alexis's point about use all the money, you have to think about it as your for real professional development funds. And if you were in a career, we get professional development funds to go to conferences and to develop ourselves. So I think that's important. The resources I would name are do all of the grant writing workshops that you can. It's a good skill to have, but it also, even if you're in a field um, in an area that's not really like unique grants, like you're not in anthropology or in the sciences, the practice of trying to um, translate your project in a really clear and organized way will make your project stronger. And the sooner you can really say, this is what my project is and this is what it's not, um, these are, this is the literature that I'm reading, the sooner you can say that, the, the easier it gets for you to defend it um, from other people deciding what it is. So that would be the big one. And shameless plug, um, find affinity spaces. If you're a person of color, if you're a woman, um, if you're in the LGBT community, find those spaces. It really changed the way that I moved it at Emory and the way that I experienced Emory once I got involved in campus life through the Center for Women um, as a graduate fellow. It, it just really just gave me another way to apply the knowledge that I was gaining. So relatable. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> all of us were graduate assistants or graduate fellows at the Center for Women. So we were, fun fact. <laughs> yeah, I, you, you, I know Chanel says like um, while I was working, but she was also building a career. You know what I mean? It wasn't just, you know, Chanel just wasn't working. She was also building a career, building a center and, and finishing, which is, I mean, just a feat. Uh, I should probably ask the CWE. All right. I, I feel like this is a really good stopping point to ask our, our question of the week, ask the CWE. So I think Alexis is going to, is going to pose the question for us. Yes. This week, the question comes from Julia and she asks, as someone who is just entering the PhD, what is something that you learned during this process that you could only learn by getting through it? I'll, I'll go first. I, I think Thank for you. me, <laughs> yeah, I, know. I think, I think for me, um, it's something I share often with people is, you know, the process can be so long and so isolating that you really start to feel like, um, you're wasting your time or, you know, like time really gets away from you because it's not a one-year program. It's not a two-year program. It's not four years. Maybe, maybe if you're a star, it's four years. Um, and, and I actually wasted so much mental energy and worry and sadness thinking that I was wasting time that I, I could have been doing all of these other things. But now that it's over, I don't think about that. I, I I don't spend a minute thinking about how long it took or, you know, maybe I spend time thinking about it was hard, but, but I don't miss that time. It's just gone. It's, it's not here anymore. And I learned a lot from it, et cetera. And so for me, something that I learned by, that I, I could only learn by finishing this or getting through this was, was that, um, yeah, it, it, it may take you a lot of time. You may choose not to continue. You may continue, you may pivot in some way, but, when, when it's done, it's done. And, you know, you may feel a certain way about it, but it'll be done. And, um, and, and I, I would tell myself to stop ruminating about that, that, that there was, there was life waiting for you on the other side. You were living life while you were doing it, but there was also this life waiting for me on the other side. Um, when I wasn't going to be, you know, typing on a crusty keyboard at 11 PM, you know, thinking, yeah, that, I, I think that that's something that I learned. The, the thing that I learned that I could have only learned by going through it is how much I love my people and my community. And, you know, um, I knew that I came to do this thing, you know, for my people, but I had to use that to remind myself to keep going. And it was actually enough to keep me going. So when things got really hard, I actually would turn on Jeezy and listen to everything I do. I do it for my hood. And I would listen to it on repeat until I believed it. And until um, until I could actually use that as a tool to motivate me. So I, I, I don't think I would have learned that if I didn't do something so difficult. So. Um, yeah, I think this is difficult because I'm to, to fully answer because I'm still in it. But I think what I've learned so far that I have only learned in this experience is that um, like you, there's no nobility in suffering in silence, you know, suffering in silence, there's no place for that. And, um, I'm a super like independent, I can do it by myself sort of person. Um, and that worked for me for a majority of my life and it, it things were cool, but 
getting this PhD and like being in a space where it's like your suffering will in fact go unnoticed and mm-hmm. care, or it's a, it's a badge of honor almost to look so tired and to look um, unwell, but I really wasn't doing well my first year. And I came from a HBCU. So the relationships that I had with my professors um, mm-hmm. felt a little different. I felt seen in a different way. I felt cared for in a different way. And so I didn't necessarily have to be so vocal about, um, the suffering that I was experiencing, but I realized that I had to start, um, I had to really advocate for myself and my needs uh, if I was going to like survive this really difficult experience Um, because that first year was like, oh, so trash for me. Um, But it wasn't until like I really started talking to people and looking for um, like mentors and, and other relationships and up to how much I was seeing my therapist and talk to my department that I was able to come out on the other side. And I think that there is a way that we are like taught to not ask for things or to not express our needs. But I literally have tattooed on my wrist that closed mouths don't get fed. (laughs) Um, And it's a reminder that I need And this experience taught me that like, I was not going to make it if I didn't start talking about what I needed and how, how this suffering wasn't, um, just to like, oh, I'm so busy. Oh, I'm so stressed. Like, nah, I was, yeah, I was on the verge, you know. Yeah. So, so that's, yeah. that's what I learned. And I, I, I'm a, I, I can be a bit jaded, but I also say that um, it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. I met some of my best friends in the entire world through doing this experience. It was the only time that I really got to sit and um read and and enjoy myself and you know that time was protected and valued um and I didn't have to explain it in that way and so I just want to make sure that um we're not ending with like don't do this and just get out at all yeah it was hard but for me it was really worth it and I think you know those three letters matter in the world and I'm it made my family it made me really, really proud to to be the first doctor in my whole family. I was the first to go to college and I made it this far. And now I'm a resource um, to, to a community in ways that I didn't have that. Um, I didn't know anybody who was a doctor if it wasn't my medical doctor. I, I just didn't know that that was a thing. And yeah. now people who know me have that, ha- have me to call. And that is worth it for me. That, that matters to me. So um, just wanted to to, to say that. I don't know if y'all have something y'all want to say that. Yeah, no, I mean, like going back to reading, like when you, when you finish that document and you go back and read it and have, have this pride in it. I mean, there are parts that you hate. Um, you know, a lot of people end up hating what they've written, but, but I didn't. And there, there are parts that I really loved and, um, and parts that I really, really enjoyed. I mean, I like, having to go to the library with Chanel after we put in eight hours at work, it was hard, but I, I still look so fondly upon, you know, sitting there struggling, ordering really bad food to eat and, and getting through it um, to produce this thing that I wanted to produce. And um, the feeling of the defense and, and having finished it was, it was, it was really, it was really rewarding. And, and on all of the people who carried you through and celebrated all of my coworkers came and, you know, the people who saw me every day really, you know, struggling, it was hard. Um, but yeah. So thank you. We're going to end as we always do with a clip from, with a quote from this 
Bridge Caught My Back. And I chose this one because I think it really touches on the importance of why we why we need women and people of color to pursue PhDs and, and to do that work. And it goes, we must remember that one of the most insidious ways of keeping women and minorities powerless is to let them only talk about harmless and inconsequential subjects or let them speak freely and not listen to them with serious intent. Mitsuye Yamada, this bridge called my back. Bye. Bye, y'all. Bye.